Today's scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. It's Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. That is the word of the Lord. And that's a good word from the Lord, I would suggest, on this Lord's Day. Which, by the way, John wrote or or had the vision of the book of Revelation that he put into work. It was on the Lord's Day. Read Read chapter 1 of Revelation. So he was in a day kind of like our day today, the Lord's Day. And, um, you know, we're in an interesting time in American culture or whatever. We're this, in this sort of transition between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I think for some, there's no transition. Christmas has been happening for, it seems like, months. Uh, feels like that. There have been Black Fridays. I don't know how many we've already had. And it's almost as though you just... So was there Thanksgiving? And, and one of the things I'd like to do this morning is to sort of revive a little bit of the Thanksgiving. At, at, at one of the core realities of Christian faith is a thankful heart. And, and I think it's also really important, the advent of Jesus. So I'm not trying to diminish Christmas, but I maybe would like to diminish the commercialism of Christmas and revive the spirit of Thanksgiving, which is befitting those that are the people of God. And I was thinking back to some of my Thanksgivings in the past. So I remember when I was a kid and my brother Don, who's on staff, we, I, I, he didn't know I was going to say that, but in first service he was here. We remember every Thanksgiving day we went to church. That's how devoted we, devoted we were. I mean, on Thanksgiving day. And my mother went. That was, and she did all the stuff that Thanksgiving's all about. We were all there for like a two-hour service, and it was one of the best services of the year because people nonstop would get up and say, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for this. And I remember one guy, his name was Harker Road, and Dale knows Harker Road. His dad, Joe Harker Road, was not one of the richest guys in the church. Seems like trouble followed his family. And every year he'd get up, and you just couldn't wait for Mr. Harker Road to get up and praise God and thank him for the year when one of his kids got shot and almost died. And... 
just, it seemed like every year it was something like that. And, and I hope you have a Mr. Harkle Road in your life who just seems to thank God no matter what or misses whatever. Uh, that was, that was important to me as a young kid growing up in church. And then I remember when my kids got of age, so I remember the first time that they were of age, that I thought they were old enough and I said, alright, so we're gonna, before you eat, what are you thankful for? How many, how many of you guys did that on Thanksgiving? Probably a couple of you did. Yeah, so the first year was shock. You know, it's like this cold water in your face. Here's a turkey. I'm salivating. You want me to sit here and think about what I'm thankful for? And so the youngest came up with family. It's a good answer. Of course, that stumped the rest of them. They didn't know what to say after that. And then one of them, brilliant, said, God. It's like, all right, that's pretty good. And then just this Thanksgiving, we FaceTimed with Parker, five years old, and asked him the inevitable question, and his mother had prepped him for it, which was good. So what are you thankful for, Parker? He reaches down and pulls up. And he says, I'm thankful for my Superman costume. And I said, that's good, Parker. You know, kind of, and we talked a little bit more. And then eventually you could tell his mother did a good job. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm thankful for God, too. Just let me add that just so I can. <clears throat> I thank God for mothers like my daughters and like some of your mothers who helped you to see the reality of being thankful. And, and so I went to a text. I thought, so what's a good text on thankfulness? And Revelation 7, believe it or not, came to my mind. And as some of you may know, Revelation is not one of the most easy books in the Bible to interpret. As a matter of fact, on occasion, it's caused some division within churches, which we're not going to allow that to happen today. Because it's not it's supposed to be an incredibly unifying book written by the Apostle Paul in one of the most difficult times in the history of the church. And the intent was to unify them around the one for whom they would be thankful. And his name was Jesus Christ. That was the point of Revelation. It amazes me how those kind of things can turn so divisive as people become hung up on a lot of little things. So we're going to look at Revelation 7. I want to give you three little Revelation hints of interpretation, which some of you I'm sure are familiar with, but will help you to read through Revelation. The first one, and it's really not in my outline, but it's to exhale. All right, Revelation doesn't have to be that hard. There's a big message. I may not know all the sub-messages, but I know the big message. And number one of Revelation is it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, read the first verse And the first words of the first verse, it's not a revelation of a beast, although there's a beast mentioned. It's not the revelation of a harlot. There's a harlot mentioned. There's all kinds of stuff going on in there. If you read the book of Revelation and you don't come away with a delight and a joy in Jesus, read it again. (laughs) You missed it. The point of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus. That's point number one. Point number two is, and and this shouldn't come as a shock, the kind of literature that Revelation is was well known in the first century. We even have a little bit of it in our culture. It's literature that's highly figurative, highly symbolic. And so as you read it, you want to read it as, okay, you'll see a three-dimensional figure like a lamb. But you know there's a fourth dimension to that lamb. And the fourth dimension in Revelation is the one who died for the sins of the world. That's a whole lot bigger than a lamb. But the lamb figures that, so you want to read the symbolism. You've got to be careful. Don't overread it, but don't underread it. And read through it and say, what's the big picture? And the big picture of Revelation is not a hard picture to get. And that is, there's a lot of evil in the world. I mean, it's devastating evil. So if you think of the worst beasts you can think of and dragons, 
That's what's going on. And yet there's this supreme sovereign king and and the lamb that sit on the throne and they're going to win in the end. And the call of the redeemed is get on their side (laughs) and persevere and don't give up and keep going and keep going. Because in the end of the day, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's, that's how we do it when we sing in the choir with the Messiah, which I've never done. <clears throat> He's going to reign forever and ever. It's about him. Third little principle is he already not yet. If you've never thought about that before, you ought to. When you read like this text we'll talk about this morning, there's a lot of not yet there. There's a lot of it's going to happen someday. And yet don't just leave it out there. It's going to happen someday. Realize and appreciate the alreadiness of it. Or the present reality of it. Or the fact that when you read Revelation 7, if you can't put yourself in that text at all today, then you've read it wrong. There's an already, it's here, but it's going to be fully realized there. Like, I'm saved today, but I can't wait for the culmination of my salvation that's yet to come. So those are three hopefully helpful little things in Revelation. So let's look at verse 9 of chapter 7. I've divided this text into three sections. It works well, and I've called them three characteristics of a thankful heart. So if you're a believer and you want to be thankful, these things ought to characterize you. The first one is this. You get the center of your thanksgiving right, and the center is Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at verse 7, or excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 7. It starts off with, After this I looked, and behold... I mean, that sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? Behold. And also, after this, when you read Revelation, another little hint is it's not written chronologically. It's like those TV shows you'll watch now, and you're watching it, and then all of a sudden they go back to something in the past, or they look forward to something in the future, and you're like, where did that come from? And then you, oh, yeah, so they're, they're telling about that. Revelation does that all the time. So the after this, the context is, is chapter 6 of Revelation. And I'm here to tell you, that if you want to know what one of the most horrifying chapters in the Bible is, it's not the most horrifying probably, but it's up there with that list of horrifying... It's chapter 6 of Revelation. It describes the first of three series of judgments in Revelation. These are called the seal judgments. Seal coming from... There's a scroll. The seals are taken off the scroll. And there are seven of them. Six of them are mentioned in Revelation 7. And here's the way it ends. Or excuse me, Revelation 6. And if you've got your Bibles, look at Revelation 6.16. This will warm your heart. Here's the people experiencing the judgment, the just judgment of God. And it says they are calling to the mountains and the rocks and saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath, the wrath, the righteous, just wrath. I shouldn't say that too often, should I? It's not politically correct. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question demanding an answer. Who can stand? Who can abide the day of his coming? And who will stand when he appeareth? And I tell you what, people on planet earth... That question's for you. <laughs> can, can you stand the scrutiny of a holy, righteous God or not? 
And I really love the way John writes Revelation because he could have just left it there and said, now let me tell you about the next series of judgments and pound you again and pound you again. And then he brings the gospel in chapter 7. And we're going to skip the first part of chapter 7. We go down to verse 9. And here's what, in that context of who can stand, and John's the observer, and, and he says, all right, after this, I looked, and behold... It's a great story. A great multitude, which no one could number, innumerable. That word for number, we, we get, actually, the Greek word comes over into English with arithmetic. You know, you can't arithmeticize it. It was just like massive. I actually am thrilled in this service. Most of the seats are filled. This feels a little like this context. I'll be honest with you. I was sitting here and I was thinking, first service is a little lower. Third will be a little lower. Glad to have all you guys here. And I hope on some level you can relate to this text, and maybe even so, you know, I don't know, every now and then I hear criticisms of big churches. You know, the Church of Christ is big. It is. It needs to be bigger. And there are challenges to big churches, but I love it when the people of God gather in assembly and we read that text, and it's going to be a bigger group than us, like a whole lot bigger than us. They're a great assembly. No one could number. There's a sevenfold description of this huge multitude. They're from every nation, number one, from all tribes, number two. And by the way, I don't know that you're intended to parse the difference between them. I think it's different ways of saying it's huge, it's diverse. There are many nations, or every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. And I think a first century hearer of this gospel or this word from John, when he heard languages, or she heard it, I think they would have thought, now I'm thinking back in Babylon, there was one language and then God came to you. Remember, there was one language. We're going to build this ziggurat, this icon, this temple. And the temple was really to them. We're going to be God. That's in essence. And God said, as in Psalm 2, I think he had a little laugh. <laughs> and then he put them in derision by changing their languages. And they float all over the place. The result of that was people of different nations fight with each other. And there's conflict and there's chaos in the world. The resolution of Babel was prefigured. At Pentecost, you remember when they all came together and the languages were united around the gospel of Jesus? The ultimate uniting of the redeemed of God is going to come in that great day when they're going to come from all over the place. Or another way of looking at it is all over the earth, like the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the water covers the sea. That day is a day we anticipate and a day for which we ought to be working today. So don't just say, on that day, there's going to be a boatload of people from different languages, tribes, etc. It ought to be today. That's got to be one of my missions, right? I'm a missionary of the king, so I ought to be after his mission. So, so you've got these, they're, they're from every nation, tribe, people, languages. And, and look at the participle. I know you guys love participles. You should love participles. They're I-N-G words. What are they all doing? Somebody's got to tell me because I'm not going to standing. You remember what the question was at the end of verse six? Who shall stand? He gives the answer. Here's the ones that are going to stand. I don't know about you. I want to be in the ones that are going to stand. I don't want to be in the ones that are going to say mountains fall on me. It's like, so that's my solution to my problems. Mountain fall on me. That just doesn't sound like a very good solution. How about standing where these guys are standing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The same characters mentioned in chapter 6 who were the ones who horrified the non-redeemed, 
who said, we want to get away from the lamb and the one seated on the throne. And this is a group of people that say, we want to get closer to the lamb and the one seated on the throne. And they're standing. And here's the reason they're standing. Because they're clothed in white robes. And you may say, well, that's just like a, that's a heaven scene. I mean, everybody in heaven has white clothes on. It's just kind of glittery and flowery. And I'm here to tell you, it's figurative, right? And the figure beyond it is that somehow their clothes, which should have been stained with the scum and the sleaze of sin, they're white. And we're going to find in the next text, the next section, you know why they're white? It isn't because they have master washing machines that just can take, I can take out any stain, you know, like all or I don't even know what the detergents are. My, my wife does laundry and, and she likes doing it. It's a good woman to marry like that. And she's good at taking out most stains. But here's what the redeemed have said. What can wash away my sin? It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. And, and it's not in me. It's in him. I stand with white robes, or these people stood with white robes because it's the whiteness of the righteousness of Christ imputed to their account, and they stand righteous before him because of Christ. And then they have palm branches in their hands. That's the last thing. And the palm branches probably signify victory. We've won. The battle's over. We're at the end. And at the end, we're triumphant. And the battle raged, and you read Revelation, and again, you can debate all your debates you want, but there's this raging battle that Martin Luther talks about in A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, this raging battle between God and his kingdom and the world and the kingdom of the world and Satan, and the battle rages. But you know what? In the end of the day, the palm branches will be waved by the redeemed of God. And here's what they're going to say. And by the way, They're not going to say it in a mealy mouse voice. They're going to say it with a loud voice. And and I'm not sure what a loud voice is, but I think it takes the decimals, whatever those things, and just kind of cranks it over. And they're going to say this, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. How can you not say amen at the end of that? Like amen and amen and amen and amen. That's the beauty of the call of the redeemed. That's what we ultimately are thankful for. And I find it very intriguing the way the text words it. It doesn't say salvation belongs to me. Are you saved? I think some of you would say, I I would say, yeah, I'm saved. I'm saved. I've trusted in Christ. Some of you may be here this morning and you can't say that. And I hope you listen well to this text. But it says, doesn't say salvation belongs to us. We're before you, Lord, and it belongs to us. It belongs to you. You're the Savior. You're the, your salvation and my salvation is primarily for his glory. And the beauty of it is it's also for my good. But when I think that this whole thing of Christ and his work and all that stuff is primarily about me, then I've really screwed the cosmos up because that's not true. Salvation belongs to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb and the redeemed are always going to have our focus here. Our focus is not here. If you want to be thankful, 
You better figure out where your focus is. If your focus is here, man, this year, I had like health and wealth, a car I got this year, you're not going to believe. I got a raise at work. I got, and you can go on and on and on and on. Then you haven't read the book of Revelation because it doesn't seem like too many of them got new cars. It doesn't look like they got pretty houses. It looks like they got trials and tribulations. And at the end of it, they said, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. It's about him more than it is about me. And then it goes on. <laughs> you like say, yeah, no, that's pretty good. That's enough. Verse 11. And all the angels were standing. You know how many angels there were? I always like rhetorical. Don't you hate those speakers that give you rhetorical questions? But you're big enough, you know you don't have to answer. I have no idea. I mean, in the Middle Ages, they used to argue how many, how many angels could dance on the, the head of a pen. And I think, which side's the head, you know? <laughs> So I'll start with that controversy, and then you ask, and it's like they're trying to deal with the, the, the spiritual world. I don't know, but I'm figuring there's a boatload of them, and it's probably a pretty big boatload, and it's a big crowd, and there they are. They're standing around the throne. You know who can stand? Angels can stand. At least the angels in this context that were confirmed in holiness. And then it goes on. They're around the throne and around the elders. And, and you would have been introduced to these elders and angels in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. You ought to go back and read. If you've never read Revelation 4 and 5, read it today after the service. Um, and then there's four living creatures. Those are these wild guys. And they're described with these multifaceted characteristics. They fell on their face before the throne and they worshiped God. It's like there's one central figure in this picture, and it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and the king who sits on the throne. And then they're doing this. They're saying, and it's really a cool statement. They say this, amen. And I think, wait a minute, minute, you guys don't understand how you're supposed to pray. You end with amen. You don't begin with amen. And I'm going to say, maybe we got to read the Bible, and maybe in our prayers we got to start with amen. Maybe we ought to say, amen, our father. You know, amen comes from a Hebrew word that means true and faithful. It means what I'm about to say is true. Amen, dear heavenly father. You know, the first part of dear heavenly father, that prayer of uh, that sample or example prayer is, hallowed be your name. It isn't, dear heavenly father, I got all these problems. I'm the center of my prayer. You're at the center of my prayer, Lord. So he says, amen at the beginning, amen at the end, good envelope. And then there's seven statements, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving is the middle of the seven. I don't know if that's significant or not, but we are around Thanksgiving Day, so that's why I picked this text. And honor and power and might be to our God whenever we come to church, (laughs) whenever it crosses our mind, or maybe it's forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's true. What I've just said is true. That is what belongs to to our God, who's the center of our thanksgiving. And if he's not the center, whatever else crowds in to be the center. And by the way, this world offers a lot of things to crowd him out, doesn't it? It does for me. And whatever crowds him out, crowds out that focus that alone is the focus of the redeemed. And it will be forever, unless you think that, oh, forever I'm going to be around this throne just saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. There's a bigger picture than that. The bigger picture is kind of like what we're told to do here in in this current world. And that is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I think in the new heaven and earth, we're going to be eating, we're going to be drinking, and we're going to be doing whatever we do, and it's all going to be the glory of God. And get started now. So whether you eat 
or drink or go to work or raise a family or play basketball or what, what else is there to do in life? I don't know. Oh, whatever that other stuff is, that the center of it is going to be Christ. You say, I don't know how to do that. Here's what I say. Get busy figuring it out. Start hanging around with the redeemed. And start saying, let's encourage one another because we've got that same center focus. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Church. College Park. You ready for this? You don't even know what I'm going to say. I'm going to divide you in half, all right? So we're going to divide. It's a divided church, but it's in order to have kind of an, I think it's called antiphonal sound. And it's going to divide right down the middle. And if you don't know, if I've pointed, if you're on, this is the left side, just so you know, and that's the right side. You can be on either one, all right? So you're in that middle. So you're left, left. You guys got your left. If you can't remember, just kind of, you know, hold your left hand. You guys are right. And I'm the amener. So I'm going to amen and amen. And you're the left are going to, here's what you're going to do. I think it's going to come up here so it'll help us. All right. This is for help for us because we're not there yet. So we still stumble with how to do this. It's a little practice for them. You know, Mark says, hey, you want some practice? We all stand up and we pray together. Here's some practice because there's going to be a day if you're one of the redeemed where you're going to stand around the throne. So this is prep for that. You, you ready for it? You ready? So I'm going to do amen. Left is going to do blessing. Right's going to do glory. Left is going to do wisdom. Then we're all together. Thanksgiving. All right. And then right is going to do honor. Left power. Right might. And then all. And man, if we could lift the roof off of this building figuratively. Remember, symbolically, don't do it literally. So Bruce will be on my case. But do it such that it all, to our God forever and ever. And then I'm going to end. Amen. Okay, you guys ready? Are we ready? Thank you. Because if you don't do it, it doesn't work. All right, so we're divided up. All right, so I'm the leader. Ready? I'm going to say, amen. Thanksgiving. To our God forever and ever. Amen. And you know, the applause has got to go to God, right? I mean, it's got to be like, thank you, Lord, that you're worthy of that. And then we got to go out of this place when it's not so crowded and we're sitting in our cars and we're in our houses and we have that same Lord that we extol and we praise because the gospel is for all of life. You know, I, I was thinking of an application of this particular point. And I am, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of College Park Church. I've been here, it feels like, forever, and it really isn't forever. Just on a temporal sense, feels like that. Can't wait till it's forever, real forever. And we do a lot of things at College Park, and our goal as leaders is to do things that aren't just programmatic, like we're a big church, let's have a whole bunch of programs. I, t- I can tell you this, I've been around long enough, I'm, t- I'm tired of programs. I'm very interested in mission. I'm very interested in God, what are you doing in the world? Let's get on board and let's do it. And we've got some bolt to us, and let's take advantage of that, realizing there's some challenges in being big. We've got two things going on that I don't know how you can read this text and not be compelled to be involved in these. One is we've got a Christmas offering. And you know what? On one level, a Christmas offering, oh, you know, one of the things I love about College Park and the Christmas offerings is it's this for that. Right? It, and, and, it, and here's what it is. We've got a brochure. It's a really cool brochure. And the brochure and its coolness is cool. But what really is significant 
is the potential for us as a little community of the redeemed, anticipating that day when we'll be around the throne, and we're going to say, Lord, may we be an instrument of your grace to bring some of those every nation, tribe, people, and languages around the throne. So this is, go- this is going to India, and I can tell you this, that it's different than most of us in terms of language, tribe, nation, whatever else. And there's a whole bunch of other India-type things around the world, and we're going to collect money, and God can use money to bring the gospel to people who have never heard about Christ so that they can be joining us around the throne. And I say, that sounds like a mission I can get into. And, and then we even got another one. Here's, here's another one. What is your next door mission? which is College Park next door. And it's not just some kind of cool program to try to see, you know, let's just have another cool program like all the churches with cool programs. Forget the programs. Let's put it center Jesus Christ and let's say we're his missionaries to carry out his mission to my next door neighbor who needs Christ and yours and some that are in fishers. And let's say that we need to be working on that. And so much the more as the day of God approaches. Because he's worthy. If he's not worthy, forget it. It's just a program. If he is worthy, then I would say the redeemed of God, we better be shouting aloud the praises of God so loud that our neighbors hear it. Right? And that in India they hear it. And that Christ can be drawn to them by his grace. You know, I do have a visual aid today. So some of you, I've had people really pressure me about visual aids. Like, eh, if you don't have one, we're leaving. I'm like, I don't need to have one every week. Here's my visual aid. And it took us a while to find it. This is a communion table down here. And uh, when I grew up in church, it was like sacred. I remember as a little kid, I felt like if I touched the communion table... It would be like the Ark of the Covenant, and I would be burned, die. <laughs> you know, a little fear of God never hurt a kid. I, I think I grew up, actually it's debatable whether I grew up normal or not, I guess. But, and, and so I don't see the table itself. The table represents, right? It's symbolic of, and the symbolism of the table, and it would be better understood in the first century, although we get a little bit of it with Thanksgiving, is communion, it's fellowship, and the host of the table, I don't know who hosted your Thanksgiving if you went together with some people, but you know who the host is? It's not the pastor, it's Christ. It's as though Christ offers his people to come to the table, or you could even say come to table fellowship with him because he alone is worthy. And I would wish for we, the church of Christ, if we had in our heads and in our minds and in our cognition the reality of the center of fellowship with the redeemed is going to be the host is Jesus. He's the one that's worthy. We ought to be coming to him on a regular basis saying, You're worthy, O Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And and I'm going to need it today. I need the reality of the gospel today. I didn't just need it that day. I I, I asked Jesus to be my Savior and trusted in him. I need it every day of my life. That's why we sometimes use the verbiage, preach the gospel every day. There's a symbolic sense in which you ought to come to the Lord's table every day and say, the center of that table is Jesus. He's the one I want to have fellowship with. He's the one I want to have communion with. He's my all in all. So I think it's sort of with the text. I, th- I think this is living out the Lord's Supper in this particular text. So, point number one. If you want to be thankful, you've got to have the right center. I intentionally belabored that point. I'll admit it. But I think it was worth it. Point number two is this. If you want to be thankful, you've got to be cleansed. 
And then I also added another C. See, I'm trying to work off a C. Center, cleansed, and you got to cling. And, and watch how the apocalyptic text brings that out in verse 13. I find this an amusing little scenario. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, and if you read through Revelation, you'll find that John gets some pretty bizarre people asking him questions. Like in the fourth chapter or the fifth chapter, a strong, a mighty angel comes up and asks John a question. If I'm John, I'm thinking, wait a minute. I didn't ask to be in this scene. I want to be like the, what do they call it? Flower, flower. I want to be like just a, a fly. I don't, I don't want to be this. I don't want to be that. You're asking me questions. Why not? So he addressed me. And, and here's the question the elder asked. Who are these people? Who are these people? And where in the world did they come from? And I love John's answer. Here's the great answer. When somebody comes up and asks you a question, you don't know the answer to it, you say this. I said to him, you know, come on, you know. It's a good answer. It's as if to say, all right, you're the studly elder. I'm just this, you know, come on, you answer the question. And then I love it too because the elder just says, yeah, all right, I'll give you the answer. Here it is. Look at the answer. Here's who these people are. And he said to them, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. That's that's one of the debated parts of the book of Revelation, for your information. If you never knew it was, praise the Lord, (laughs) because just read it. And there could be, some would interpret that there's the future tribulation that a group of people are going to go through, and that's a possibility. I grant that as a theological possibility. But don't miss the already. John's writing to a first century group of Christians. Tradition has it, regarded to tradition, all the apostles but him were dead. Probably most of the apostles, other than him, had been martyred. And, and you know where he was? He's in, a, in exile on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. So how has that Christianity experiment gone? Like all your big guys, they, I mean, they haven't made it that far. And John's writing a letter to a church who's experiencing persecution. They're experiencing tribulation in a very real sense. They're experiencing stuff like, if you read Hebrews 11, it talks about those guys sawn asunder. I think that's the King James, like sawed in half. And, and, and the ones that were put in, 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 in animal skins so that the lions could devour them. Yeah, they, they'd experience tribulation. Maybe, maybe not the great tribulation, I'm not sure. But certainly what they'd experience, and you know what the point of that text is? They did not give up the faith. They persevered. They have come through. That's really the theological significance of that point. They haven't faltered. They haven't given up. They've been through trials. They've been through tribulations. And they've come out on the end. I think a college park and even my brother praying this morning. I don't know that we're in the great tribulation. I wouldn't argue that. But you know what? We've got people in our church that have been through tribulation I'm pretty sure I got this number right because Don said it the other day that 50 families in our church in this calendar year have experienced death in their family. 50! Maybe that's the reason to go to a smaller church. Maybe there aren't going to be as many of those. And yet the reality of it is it's going to hit you all sometime, right, if the Lord doesn't return because that is the ultimate weapon of the enemy is death. And that trial and tribulation of life. And then some, some that haven't died yet are, are probably in our midst praying to die because they're in such agonizing states of life. And, and that affects some of you. 
that it affects me. And the church needs to be saying when we're going through the valleys of the shadow of death that we don't have to fear any evil because God Almighty is with us. Persevere. Don't give up the faith. Don't give up the faith. Don't give up the faith. We have people in our church too, like me, that struggle with sin. And if you have to preach and never have struggled with sin, then you better get some new preachers. <laughs> and, and, and the struggle sometimes is so intense and so difficult that we want to give in. We want to give in to our lust. We want to give in to our covetousness. We want to give in to our selfish persons and souls. And these are people who persevere, who persevere, who get back up, who repent of their sins. I mean, that's got to be a part of what's going on in that particular text. They've endured through the great tribulation. And you know how they're able to do that? But look at the next part. (laughs) These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the church isn't made up of a whole bunch of really righteous, self-righteous people. Although, methinks, at times, we could come across to the world as self-righteous people. And then I hope that very quickly on our lips is going to be, if it's not for the grace of God, there go we. We would be the ones not standing. We would be the ones asking for the mountains to fall on us. My hope is in the Lord and in Him only. Some of the songs we sang this morning, because I knew what I was going to preach on, they're those songs that's like, like the one Eric wrote, I'm going to walk. And I haven't gotten all the words in my head yet, but it's sort of like that walk, that walk of perseverance. Or the one that Aaron wrote that... You know, I I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. Because you've done what I couldn't do. You've cleansed me of my sin. If you're one of the redeemed. And you may be here this morning. And with a group this size, one of the cool things about a group this size is I, I, I would imagine there's somebody in here who has not trusted in the Lamb as your hope for eternal life. And you know what? You, you can float through life. And you, you can, you know, you can say, oh, well, that's just those Christian kind of spiritual people. And you know what? The reality of your life is going to end in death. And the question is, is death going to be the end of it or not? And the reality is that Jesus Christ has offered not death, but the reversal of death, the bringing to life. And that life comes through Jesus Christ. And actually, the way to defeat death is through death. That's sort of the paradox of Christianity. That our death is defeated by Christ's death, and then not just his death, his resurrection and his ascension, which is what we're reading about in that text. And I would say, I can't think of anything more important to say to you, and if you're like me and you're a believer, I can't think of anything more important to say to my neighbor or to say to somebody in India or Cambodia than that Jesus died for you, and you need to repent of your sin and trust in him. And it's not just some game we play. It's got eternal significance, doesn't it? And if we believe that, we're going to praise the Lamb. And then we're going to say, wow, we are incredibly grateful because we stand before this Lamb as one who has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's not in our own merit. And as a result of that, we're going to persevere for the kingdom through the hardest of trials, whether they're physical, whether they're spiritual, because He's worth it and because He can enable us to do it. So my, the second part of my visual aid is, you know, I, I said this in first service, and I think it's true. I was, at, I was in San Diego at a theology conference, suffering in a theology conference in San Diego last week. One of the guys was talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says it's kind of ironic that we have these minuscule little 
little bread things and these, this minor little, this little, little cup and, and you take this little taste and it's somehow reflective of that day. The, the Lord, you know, at the, at the end of this, after there's, there's also a, a marriage supper of the lamb. And I can tell you this, the marriage supper of the lamb, you don't get a little cracker and just a little sip of juice. You're going to get all you want to drink and you're going to get all you want to eat. And, and I wish we, I wish everybody could drink one of these every communion service we have. But can you imagine how big the trays would be when they're going down the aisles? And it just wouldn't work. Or then we had pieces of bread like this, you know, I mean, how long would it take you to eat that? But at the end you would say, I'm full. <laughs> and I don't know what fills you up, but the people of God who centers Jesus Christ, what fills me up is this. It's the sustaining reality every day, every minute of my life. Jesus died for me and rose again and give me another drink of Jesus. Because I need him every hour. I can't get enough. We're going to do communion on Christmas Eve. First service, I said it was in two weeks. Scratch that from the tape. It's on Christmas Eve. What a cool time to do. It's like if the Lord hasn't returned, which would be Christmas 2, if he hasn't already returned, then we celebrate Christmas 1 and say, give me more of this. It saved me from my sins, but it also gives me life to live and persevere for my Lord until that great day. So Lord, matter of fact, some call this Eucharist, which means thanksgiving because of the cleansing work of Christ. Well, quickly, we've got to go to point three. And I really wish I had like two weeks for point three because it starts in verse 15. So point one is if you want to be thankful, you've got to have the right center. Point two, if you're thankful, you're going to have the right cleansing and you'll cling to the one who cleanses you. And point three is the day is going to come when the curse is going to be reversed. And I don't think Christianity is a message of just persevere, persevere, persevere forever. It's persevere, 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 because God's going to fix it. And the hope of the redeemed isn't give me more of this. It's help me to persevere this so that I can have that, which is the full beauty of the glory of God, where the curse is removed. The curse came really early in the Bible. The removal of the curse comes really late in the Bible. And in between is where we live, wrestling with curse and praying, God, come Quickly, and the come quickly isn't just, I, I want to I escape. The come quickly is finish crushing the head of that serpent, which for some may look like cancer. For some, it may look like an incredible, insatiable lust. For some, it may look like, I just, I just, I'm so selfish. It may look like, crush the head of that serpent. And you've already crushed it. There's an already to it, right? In the cross of Christ, the serpent's head was crushed. And I can't wait for the last day. Let's, let's look at how that comes out in verse 15. It says, therefore... That's a good concluding word. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And I've already said that doesn't mean... See, his temple you'll find in chapter 21 of Revelation is the whole earth. So you're going to be eating, drinking, whatever you're doing, it's all going to be in the temple of God. The presence of God will permeate everything. And you'll be there serving him with all of your life like we ought to be doing now. But it'll be, it'll be beautiful then because the curse will be removed. And then it says, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. That's a tabernacle word. There'll be safety there. There'll be no serpents. There'll be no evil. There'll be no angst of what could come next because he's got them sheltered. Verse 16, they neither hunger, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst. Which doesn't mean you won't eat or drink. 
It just means you won't be destitute. You won't be with need. Your needs will all be met. I don't know about you. Sounds pretty good. I'm not sure my 401k is going to do that. But I'm sure in that great day, he'll do that. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And I think some of the last couple of days I've said, sun, come on and scorch me. But that's because it's been cold. But if you lived in the Middle East, you would know that the sun is one of those things that can bring death pretty quickly to people. And, and so from their point of view, it's like there's not going to be the source of death anymore, the source of, of, uh, of scorching heat. And here's why in verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Sounds like 23rd Psalm, doesn't it? And, and don't think John the Apostle didn't know the 23rd Psalm. He did. He also wrote the Gospel of John, and he remembered what he wrote about the great shepherd. John was a pretty good shepherd guy, and he understood that Jesus is the shepherd of his people, and he will guide them into springs of living water. <sighs> Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? Then look at the last part. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the day I want to get to. I want to get to the day where we don't bury people anymore. Where we don't do hospital visits. I'll give my brother money if he needs it. (laughs) The day when tears will be wiped away. I got a final illustration here. You know, today, we're not there yet, right? There's still tears. And I'm pretty sure, you know, you know, we think, oh, this year's almost over. And it's kind of almost over, but you know what? There's a twelfth of it left, right? There's a lot left, 2014. And some of you are going to experience it. Maybe me. Some of us will experience tears. And in this context, the tears are tears of sorrows. And we're going to need this. And, and here's what I would say. That this is the table you come to to appreciate the cleansing of Jesus Christ. It's also where you come to find the ultimate comfort in life. It's the God of all comfort. Jesus is the man of sorrows. And you come and have Jesus wipe your tears. And then somebody else comes and Jesus wipes their tears and wipes their tears. And I don't know who you want wiping your tears But he's a really good tear wiper. And the hope of the redeemed isn't he'll never run out of Kleenexes. The hope of the redeemed is we won't need Kleenexes anymore. That it'll be gone. The hope is that, and it's a legitimate hope, that the sovereign God who sits on the throne and the Lamb will ultimately and finally crush evil and that we will live, read Revelation 21 and 22, we will abide in a new heaven and a new earth where the glory of God covers the earth like the water covers the sea and you and I can persevere today while Christ is our comfort, saying you're our comfort until the day when you finally get rid of all the Kleenexes because we don't need them anymore. And I say, and the church has always said, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want to get to that point. But before we get to that point, we got a job to do. we got a mission to do. We're the representatives of the Redeemer. And the representative of the Redeemer needs to represent the Redeemer well next door in India, around the world and in our own lives as we say, we're going to make you center 
Thank you for your cleansing worth. We're clinging to you because it's worth it. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials, they're going to seem so small. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. And here's the so. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Would you stand? I picked an old song, and some of you know it, and I want us to sing it kind of as our benediction. And the words will be up here on the screen. And here's my call to us, the people of God. What a, what a, we're a neat little mass of the redeemed of God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, we're going to have people up here. I'm going to be here. I'd love to share Jesus with you because I don't know of any better news for you. For those of us that are the redeemed, Let's sing this song in praise to the Lord and let's get our center right and let's live to exalt him until he comes back. Sing it with me, will you? And the redeemed of God say, Amen and Amen. Thank you, College Park. I pray God's blessing on you for this last 12th of the year as we look forward to his return, diligently pursuing him for his glory. To him be the glory alone. Thank you.